Section twenty of Bullfinch's The Legends of Charlemagne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert White. The Age of Charlemagne by Thomas Bullfinch. Section twenty. The Battle of Roncesvalles. Part One. After the expulsion of the Saracens from France, Charlemagne led his army into Spain to punish Marsilius, the king of that country, for having sided with the African Saracens in the late war. Charlemagne succeeded in all his attempts, and compelled Marsilius to submit and pay tribute to France. Our readers will remember Garno, otherwise called Gan, or Ganelon, whom we mentioned in one of our early chapters as an old courtier of Charlemagne, and a deadly enemy of Orlando, Rinaldo, and all their friends. He had a great influence over Charles, from equality of age and long intimacy, and he was not without good qualities. He was brave and sagacious, but envious, false, and treacherous. Gan prevailed on Charles to send him an ambassador to Marsilius, to arrange the tribute. He embraced Orlando over and over again at taking leave, using such pains to seem loving and sincere, that his hypocrisy was manifest to every one but the old monarch. He fastened with equal tenderness on Oliver, who smiled contemptuously in his face, and thought to himself, You may make as many fair speeches as you choose, but you lie. All the other paladins who were present thought the same, and they said as much to the emperor, adding that Gan should on no account be sent ambassador to the Spaniards, but Charles was infatuated. Gan was received with great honour by Marsilius. The king attended by his lords came fifteen miles out of Saragossa to meet him, and then conducted him into the city with acclamations. There was nothing for several days but balls, games, and exhibitions of chivalry, the ladies throwing flowers on the heads of the French knights, and the people shouting, France, Mountjoy, and St. Denis. After the ceremonies of the first reception, the king and the ambassador began to understand one another. One day they sat together in a garden, on the border of a fountain. The water was so clear and smooth it reflected every object around, and the spot was encircled with fruit trees which quivered with the fresh air. As they sat and talked, as if without restraint, Gan, without looking the king in the face, was enabled to see the expression of his countenance in the water, and governed his speech accordingly. Marsilius was equally adroit, and watched the face of Gan while he addressed him. Marsilius began by lamenting, not as to the ambassador, but as to the friend the injuries which Charles had done him by invading his dominions, charging him with wishing to take his kingdom from him and give it to Orlando, till at length he plainly uttered his belief that if that ambitious paladin were but dead, good men would get their rights. Gan heaved a sigh, as if he was unwillingly compelled to allow the force of what the king said, but unable to contain himself long, he lifted up his face radiant with triumphant wickedness, 
and exclaimed, Every word you utter is truth. Die he must, and die also must Oliver, who struck me that foul blow at court. Is it treachery to punish affronts like these? I have planned everything. I have settled everything already with their besotted master. Orlando will come to your borders, to Roncevallis, for the purpose of receiving the tribute. Charles will await him at the foot of the mountains. Orlando will bring but a small band with him. You, when you meet him, will have secretly your whole army at your back. You surround him, and who receives tribute then? The new Judas had scarcely uttered these words, when his exultation was interrupted by a change in the face of nature. The sky was suddenly overcast. There was thunder and lightning. A laurel was split in two from head to foot, and the carob tree under which Gan was sitting, which is said to be the species of tree on which Judas Iscariot hung himself, dropped one of its pods on his head. Marsilius, as well as Gan, was appalled at this omen, but on assembling his soothsayers, they came to the conclusion that the laurel tree turned the omen against the emperor, the successor of the Caesars, though one of them renewed the consternation of Gan by saying that he did not understand the meaning of the tree of Judas, and intimating that perhaps the ambassador could explain it. Gan relieved his vexation by anger. The habit of wickedness prevailed over all other considerations, and the king prepared to march to Roncevallis at the head of all his forces. Gan wrote to Charlemagne to say how humbly and submissively Marsilius was coming to pay the tribute into the hands of Orlando, and how handsome it would be of the emperor to meet him halfway, and so be ready to receive him after the payment at his camp. He added a brilliant account of the tribute and the accompanying presents. The good emperor wrote in turn to say how pleased he was with the ambassador's diligence, and that matters were arranged precisely as he wished. His court, however, had its suspicions still. Though they little thought Gan's object in bringing Charles into the neighbourhood of Roncevallis was to deliver him into the hands of Marsilius after Orlando should have been destroyed by him. Orlando, however, did as his lord and sovereign desired. He went to Roncevallis, accompanied by a moderate train of warriors, not dreaming of the atrocity that awaited him. Gan, meanwhile, had hastened back to France, in order to show himself free and easy in the presence of Charles, and secure the, su the success of his plot. While Marsilius, to make assurance doubly sure, brought into the passes of Roncevallis no less than three armies, which were successively to fall on the paladin in case of the worst, and so extinguish him with numbers. He had also, by Gan's advice, brought heaps of wine and good cheer to be set before his victims in the first instance. For that, said the traitor, will render the onset the more effective, the feasters being unarmed. One thing, however, I must not forget, added he, my son Baldwin is sure to be with Orlando. You must take care of his life for my sake. I give him this vesture off my own body, said the king. Let him wear it in the battle, and have no fear. My soldiers shall be directed not to touch him. 
Gan went away rejoicing to France. He embraced the sovereign and the court all around with the air of a man who had brought them nothing but blessings, and the old king wept for very tenderness and delight. Something is going on wrong and looks very black, thought Malagigi, the good wizard. Rinaldo is not here, and it is indispensably necessary that he should be. I must find out where he is, and Ricciardetto too, and send for them with all speed. Malagigi called up his art, a wise, terrible, and cruel spirit named Ashtaroth. Tell me, and tell me truly, of Rinaldo, said Malagigi to the spirit. The demon looked hard at the paladin, and said nothing. His aspect was clouded and violent. The enchanter, with an aspect still cloudier, bade Ashtaroth lay down that look, and made signs as if he would resort to angrier compulsion, and the devil, alarmed, loosened his tongue, and said, You have not told me what you desire to know of Rinaldo. I desire to know what he has been doing and where he is. He has been conquering and baptizing the world, east and west, said the demon, and now is in Egypt with Ricciardetto. And what has Gan been plotting with Marsilius? inquired Malagigi. And what is to come of it? I know not, said the devil. I was not attending to Gan at the time, and we fallen spirits know not the future. All I discern is that by the signs and comets in the heavens something dreadful is about to happen, something very strange, treacherous, and bloody, and that Gan has a seat ready prepared for him in hell. Within three days, cried the enchanter loudly, bring Rinaldo and Ricciardetto into the pass of Roncesvalles. Do it, and I hereby undertake to summon thee no more. Suppose they will not trust themselves with me, said the spirit. Enter Rinaldo's horse and bring him, whether he trusts thee or not. It shall be done, returned the demon. There was an earthquake, and Ashtaroth disappeared. Marsilius now made his first movement towards the destruction of Orlando, by sending before him his vassal, King Blanchardin, with his presence of wines and other luxuries. The temperate but courteous hero took them in good part, and distributed them as the traitor wished, and then Blanchardin, on pretense of going forward to salute Charlemagne, returned and put himself at the head of the second army, which was the post assigned him by his liege lord, King Falceron, whose son Orlando had slain in battle, headed the first army, and King Balaganti the third. Marsilius made a speech to them in which he let them into his design, and concluded by recommending to their good will the son of his friend, Gan, whom they would know by the vest he had sent him, and who was the only soul amongst the Christian they were to spare. This son of Gan, meanwhile, and several of the paladins who distrusted the misbelievers, and were anxious at all events to be with Orlando, had joined the hero in the fatal valley, so that the little Christian host, considering the tremendous valour of their lord and his friends, were not to be sold for nothing. Rinaldo, alas, the second thunderbolt of Christendom, was destined not to be there in time to meet the issue. The paladins in vain begged Orlando to be on his guard against treachery, 
and send for a more numerous body of men. The great heart of the champion of the faith was unwilling to harbour suspicion as long as he could help it. He refused to summon aid which might be superfluous. Neither would he do anything but what his liege lord had directed. And yet he could not wholly repress a misgiving. A shadow had fallen on his heart, great and cheerful as it was. The anticipations of his friends disturbed him, in spite of the face with which he met them. Perhaps, by a certain foresight, he felt his death approaching. But he felt bound not to encourage the impression. Besides, time pressed. The moment of the looked-for tribute was at hand, and little combinations of circumstances determine often the greatest events. End of section 20 Recording by Robert White